This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 912, a conversation with Glenn Greenberg. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 912. It's my conversation with Glenn Greenberg. Glenn worked at Marvel in the 90, 1990s. He was uh, an editor. He also was a writer. He did a lot of different work, and he's still working in in uh, related kind of publishing fields, although he's not specifically in the comic book field um, working for the big two anymore. But uh, he had a big imprint. Uh, it's not a big imprint, a big... Um, footprint uh at marvel in the 90s so we talk a lot in this episode about kind of working at editorial we talk about his time working with mark runewald what mark runewald kind of meant to people like glenn uh, who are kind of coming through the ranks at that time we talk about uh glenn's work on um bringing you know being part of the editorial team that kind of brought uh untold tales of spider-man into being which is a book that i definitely really love and appreciate so i'm really glad to talk to glenn about that we also talked about uh, hobgoblin lives uh which was a miniseries by roger stern who i've actually talked about i've talked about that miniseries twice on this on this show before i've talked about it specifically with roger stern and also with ron friends who drew it and so now we get to talk to glenn about kind of what it was like kind of working to get that book out as well and also working on goblins at the gate as well as the osborne journal which is one of my favorite one shots of spider-man probably ever and it was very very informative and impactful to a very young adam chapman who was reading it when he's like 13 years old and it really meant a lot to me so being able to talk to glenn about that was pretty cool um i think we don't really we steer kind of clear of but i am going to at least mention it that it does exist is that if you look up at something that i've always uh championed something called the life of riley uh chronicles or archive i guess it's a day archive life of riley archive online you can find a, a, a series of uh that he uh, Glenn Greenberg did with uh, Andrew Golitz many years ago. I want to say it was like 20 years ago. It, there's still like, again, archives of it. Um, it was like a 35 point, 35 part serial that kind of looked at the clone saga, explained everything that happened. And then you also had kind of a bit of, um, what's the word, kind of behind the scenes uh, information from Glenn. So I've always, no, that's probably where I first kind of really knew who Glenn was. Like I knew the Osborne journal, but I didn't necessarily, I was 13 years old and probably didn't connect who wrote it. Um, but uh, reading, you know, his interpretation of what was going on in the clones, like was very impactful to me. Cause I, when I read that, I was probably like 20 years old and really interested in that period and how it all came to be. Um, so we don't really touch on that here. Uh, Cause I think, you know, he's definitely done, done his part to talk about the clone saga uh, there and other places. So I thought that that was kind of a uh, very well trod ground that we didn't really need to go over, but I did want to talk about again, the, Osborne Journal and uh, other things that he actually had a direct impact on and was writing uh, and what that kind of meant for him as a writer and as a, you know, as someone in comic books as well. Anyways, thank you for listening to this preamble. Uh, let's jump right into the conversation. But before I do, you can always email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and listen to us on Stitcher. This episode is going up about three days later than I expected, so, or four days later. Um, it was supposed to go up last Friday or Saturday, so I do apologize for the delay. Uh, the good news is that hopefully... Um, have an interview with Jim Selleck going up uh, on time, hopefully, which is uh, this Friday, uh, which would be, I guess, the... I don't even know what day I... What day is it? Um, I guess that would make it the 8th of October. So um, that's something to look forward to. Anyways, thanks again for listening, and let's jump right into the conversation with Glenn Greenberg. Enjoy. Glenn, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. How are you today? Thank you for inviting me. 
Absolutely. I've always been interested in the, you know, the, the 90s Marvel period. I, uh, you know, started really getting into comics in that period. Obviously, you worked in editorial at that time. I'm really interested in, you know, the, the workings of editorial, what it was like, and also some of the works you worked on and wrote. And so usually my first question is, what really got you into comics? But really what I really want to ask you and what I've been asking more and more people these days is, what is your favorite Mark Gruenwald story? Uh, okay. Well, Mark Grunewald's story in terms of uh, something that he's written or my, uh, or, or, or an anecdote about Mark? An anecdote about Mark as a person. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is, this is, this is the one that, I, that, that, that I've been telling a lot more uh, lately because it, it just, it's quintessential Mark. Uh, Mark, in addition to being our executive editor and our continuity cop at Marvel, was also, um, he was our, he called himself our school marm. So what would happen <laughs> was um, every week he would meet with the assistant editors and he c- prepared a year-long curriculum. Uh, he used to call us future editors of America. Um, and, you know, the idea being that, you know, someday, you know, at least some of us were going to grow up to be, you know, full editors at Marvel. And so he gave us this curriculum um, week by on a weekly basis and taught us the mechanics of story and writing and editing and character and character building and how the character what, what how the supporting cast is supposed to relate to the 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 main title character and all that all that kind of stuff. One of the lessons that he taught us was um, if you're going to write a Marvel comic book about one a specific character. The story has to be written about that character. So, for example, if you write a Daredevil story and um, you can easily take out Daredevil and drop in Captain America, for for example, uh, then you haven't written a Daredevil story. And so that was one of the lessons that really stayed with me. And as I started building a writing career at Marvel, and Mark was one of the editors who was open to my pitches, um, uh, this was this was pretty late in the game. This was this was shortly before he passed away. He was editing books again, in addition to being you know our executive editor. Mm-hmm. And so uh, one of the books that he was editing was The Silver Surfer, and uh, I was pitching him, and I pitched him uh, a Silver Surfer story, and he said to me, "Well, you know." He read the story. He says, I like it. He says, I like it. He says, but unfortunately, right now, I'm not in the need of any Silver Surfer stories. But I'm launching this other book, this anthology book uh, featuring some of the other cosmic heroes. So if you could take the Silver Surfer out and put like Fire Lord in, (laughs) I can use the story. And I looked at him like, are you kidding me? What about the... and he, he looked at me and he knew exactly what was on my mind, which was, what about that lesson? And, and he, you know, he, he saw the look in my face and he says, I know, I know. But do you want to sell the story or not? <laughs> and well, he, and he, he bought the story. I turned it into a Fire Lord story and he bought it. Um, that, that to me is like a, a, a great, great Mark story. That's awesome. Uh, actually, yeah. in and around that period, again, one of your kind of first uh, credited writing works was on Uncanny Origins number five about the Hulk. Now, that particular issue is dedicated to the to, to the memory of Mark Grunwald. So, what was that like to kind of work on that story? And again, it ends up being dedicated to him at, when it finally sees print. Mark commissioned me to to write that story. Um, he he um, he was launching that book, 
and I think he put out a feeler to, uh, to, to, to the you know to the staff. You know, if if there's any characters that you're interested in, let me know. And um, either he offered me the Hulk, or I said, "Is the Hulk taken?" Because I'd love to do the Hulk. Uh, and he gave it to me. So that was one of the last assignments that he gave out. Um, and I was working on it. I was literally working on it um, when the news came of his of his passing. And uh, I, I remember I was I was in midway through writing the script because I think the art had already come in, and I was writing the script, and uh, it took me a few days to recover and 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 get back to, to finishing it. Uh, I couldn't touch it uh, for for a few days after after he passed. Uh, I was I was so upset, uh, and there was there was there was no question that we were going to dedicate the issue to to, to him. I mean, he's he's the one who commissioned it. Mm-hmm. Um, he just, you know, he didn't live to see it. No, I, I, again, I, I, this might be sensitive, so I apologize in advance. But I mean, I, I obviously Mark Grunwald had a huge part. He was the soul of Marvel. A lot of people have said. And you're working in the offices. You're, you know, an editor at the time, and you're also again writing on a book that he commissioned for, uh, or a script that he commissioned from you. Um, what What was the morale like when he passed? Like, uh, did it did it feel like like you guys lost the soul of Marvel? Yeah. briefly. It's funny that you put it that way because when we all gathered in the editor-in-chief's office um, in a state of shock, I mean, just picture, you know, 12, 15, maybe 20 people gathered in an office just with absolute shock and dismay on their faces and, you know, dead silence. And and I think a couple of people started talking, you know, just expressing their feelings. And my exact words, it's just so funny that you put it that way, my exact words were, he was the heart and soul of this place, um, and I think that a lot of people felt that way. That that he really was not just the soul; he was the heart too. Um, it, 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 we, it was just shock and disbelief. I mean, mostly because it was so sudden. I mean, nobody would have seen this coming. Mm-hmm. It was um, just devastating. Just, just, just devastating. I, I honestly don't think the company ever recovered from it. So I sometimes ask this question, and obviously it's it's wild conjecture. But like, how different do you think Marvel would have been if Mark Grunewald hadn't passed away? Well, I'll be honest with you. I I don't think the way the company was headed. I don't think Mark would have been there much longer. Hmm. I I think the way things were going, they eventually would have laid him off if he didn't find another you know path. If he didn't if he didn't you know sort of create his own exit strategy. Um, but had he been laid off or had he, you know, been uh, uh, sort of leaning towards leaving, I, I don't think there's a, a lot of doubt in anybody's mind that he would have found a very safe haven at D.C. Hmm. Now, another question, and this I often think about that this with relation to Mark Runewald is that obviously he – you know, he was the continuity maven, right? Like he was the one who mm-hmm. really, you know, loved and embraced what the power that continuity really had. I mean, a lot of people like to complain about, you know, how the nets that continuity kind of provides and makes it harder to write things. But I think he really embraced how, you know, continuity was a good thing and it was a, it was a positive. And I feel like there was a, an entire era that kind of came out of, you know, the official handbooks and all that kind of stuff where you had a period where people really loved continuity and they're kind of, you know, uh, I would say this legacy of Mark Runewald. Um, do you find like were you part of that legacy of kind of embracing and loving the the continuity and the power of that in terms of what that meant for comics? Sure, I I was a big 
booster of, of continuity in the sense that I didn't like um, I, I didn't like contradicting or ignoring previous stories. In other words, if, if something was established in an earlier story and you're doing something that's going to contradict it, I wasn't in favor of that. I felt felt like if you want to make a change or you want to undo that old story, come up with a clever way to address it and get to where you want to go. Mm-hmm. I was a believer in, in that kind of thing. Um, I understood the other argument that you didn't want to be hamstrung by the past. But I, I felt – I was of, of the firm belief that there's always a clever way, a creative way to get past – old continuity and that was just the Marvel way I mean that's just the way Marvel approached it DC was the company that ignored old stories you know mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know Danny O'Neill becomes editor of Batman in 1986 and none of the stories that came before that counted anymore you know um, and, and and you found out the hard way when, when more and more stories came out that made it clear that that story that you read a couple of years ago that, uh, that Len Wein edited and Doug Mensch wrote that's not part of the history anymore and I, I didn't like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way Marvel did it was was it, it it just made more sense to me because it was a continuing through line from 1961. This has been an ongoing saga, and that was really cool. I loved the fact that I was introduced to Spider Man in the early to mid 70s, and I loved the fact that when um, Pocket Books put out. Those uh, those little uh, uh, mass market paperbacks reprinting the first you know six issues in, in the first volume that kind of thing you know and I could read those original Stanley and Steve Ditko stories and think this is the same guy mm-hmm. and the guy that they're publishing now it's all and if I can find a way to get all those back issues I'll have the whole history of this character it's one ongoing story I love that I was I was much more excited and intrigued. By that approach, than by D, uh, DC's approach was eh, just chuck it all out when when the next editor comes in. So one thing that's definitely gone the way uh, is not referenced or used much anymore in comics, and this is just kind of a, a bigger picture thing. And I'm, I want to get your kind of feelings about it. Is that they don't use a lot of editorial boxes anymore? The you know you know check out this issue for that or this happened right. back then. And I always loved that as a kid because I found that again it was it was it was giving me an, a window into a world. Um, that I maybe someday I'll be able to get that issue and I'll be able to see that story. But they reference right. it so I know that it existed, uh, right. even if I haven't read that story myself. And for me, I always thought that that was additive. That added more incentive to, again, give me this sense of this grand world, this tapestry I get to read, and it was exciting. And I feel like, you know, eventually a lot of, you know, not just Marvel, DC kind of shied away from those as well. Maybe it was they thought it was too confusing or added asked too much of the reader. But as a younger reader, I always thought that was the best thing. And it's interesting that a lot of people would make the argument that you have to make comics accessible, you know, to, to new readers. And I always felt, well, I was a kid in the 90s picking up X-Men comics and Spider-Man comics at possibly their most confusing points. And I just thought it was exciting. So I, I always thought that was a weird argument because if you really want to read it and if you're excited by the characters, it won't matter that it's a little bit confusing. You'll just want to know more. I love the footnotes. Uh, it, it helped me build up my, my back issue collection and mm-hmm. find find the stories that were being referenced. Um, I miss thought balloons. Mm. I miss th- I, I mean, the thing is, is uh, there was this new sort of thinking and it was towards the end of my time. Uh, at Marvel and this new sort of thinking which was well if you watch a TV show or a movie 
you don't have access to the character's thoughts. The, this isn't this isn't a novel. This is a visual medium. Hmm. And and my argument is why are you taking away some of the really unique great tools that only comic books have? Whether it's it's captions or footnotes or thought balloons, that's what that's what comics can do that no other medium can do in, in, in that way. And I just felt like they were cutting off their nose to spite their face. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of this came from the desire to make comic books more like television shows and movies, all the great dramas that were on TV around that time. Remember, there was uh, The Sopranos and, and Oz on HBO and NYPD Blue. And, you know, you didn't have, you know, the characters sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, standing there silently while a voiceover tells you exactly what they're thinking. But in comics, you had that, and it worked pretty well, as far as I was concerned. More, you know, skilled writers were able to use the thought balloons really, really successfully. You know, there were some that that kind of wrote it very sort of meatball, you know, ham-fisted and, 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 and clumsy thought balloons. But the but the better writers, as as with any anything, you know, the better writers wrote better dialogue to begin with. So the thought balloons, I just I just. Never quite understood why they did away with that, um, and um, that's something that I miss. I, I feel like you're, you're getting half a story now uh, these days in, in comics when, when you're when you're just limited to uh, dialogue, you know, word word balloons. Oh, absolutely, and I, it's interesting because I, I was thinking of like some unique voices that came out because of that kind of internal thought dialogue. And like one of them is, you know, spider girl by Tom DeFalco is that, that that whole thing is, is interesting because it's really first person to may like it's a, cause she's talking to herself. Um, mm-hmm. so it's an interesting perspective, but again, if you don't have that, it really loses a lot of that strong narrative voice. That's how you very quickly understand who that character is because of the way it's written. And if they had stripped that out and again, made it more quote unquote cinematic, you would have lost a lot of the, the charm. Right, right. I mean, you know, between Peter Parker and, and Bruce Banner, uh, you know, lo- losing, especially in the case of Bruce Banner, I don't know who that guy is anymore. You know, mm. is he is he a bad guy? Is he a good guy? He's not the guy that I knew. Um, and 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 it would it would have been great to have access. It would be great to have access to his thoughts now because I don't know who he is. I don't know what maybe and maybe that's what they're going for. But I don't like a Bruce Banner that I'm not sure if he's you know you know a, a villain or not or a bad guy or or, a, or crazy just downright crazy. <laughs> and it's funny because you know I remember I mean this this is dating myself a little bit but I remember reading an interview with Bill Bixby and this is going back to around 1977 78 mm-hmm. and he was doing the Hulk TV show and he did an interview with I'm, I'm not sure if you remember the Hulk magazine do you remember that yep okay. I, know, I know of it okay so it started out as the rampaging Hulk magazine in the in the, in the mid 70s and then it became a color magazine called the Hulk and it was it was a newsstand magazine where they did more mature more sophisticated Hulk stories and uh, so they did an interview with Bill Bixby, and he was talking about how uh, the way he has to approach 
David Banner because he wasn't playing Bruce Banner; he was playing David Banner. <laughs> but but the way he approached the characters, he tries to convey so much in his facial expressions and in the way he performs. And he says, he says, what comic books? And I'm paraphrasing. What comic books? The advantage that comic book has, uh, comic books have, is you've got the thought but You're privy to the character's thoughts. I don't have that advantage, so I have to. And it's like even he understood the advantage that comic books had over live action, you know? And uh, I, I wish more people did understand that. For sure. Now, I'm going to go back for a second. We had talked yeah. briefly about, you know, again, the idea of, of continuity and being able to kind of use things retroactively. So a great example of retroactive continuity that really worked well and was really well put together is obviously Untold Tales of Spider-Man in the 90s, which was uh-huh. a beautiful book that, yeah. again, danced within the raindrops of Stan Lee and Steve Ditko, didn't, didn't uh, you know, didn't... Um, uh, say that any of it didn't happen again it was all well placed and really well thought out and obviously you had an instrumental part in kind of that book coming about so I'm interested to kind of talk to you about you know wh- wh- what was really the genesis of that book and how was it greenlit it was interesting obviously it was one of the dollar books at the time so it was a very interesting time to kind of launch a book like that um, that had a very specific you know version of Spider-Man that was again very retro at the time because you're in the middle of the clone saga at, at, in the you know current continuity so what kind of brought about this Untold Tales of Spider-Man experiment? Well, we had launched a, a series of, of 99-cent books. It was it was an attempt to um, give us a shot, a bigger, a better shot and a bigger shot on the newsstands and just get more people. Well, you know, one of the complaints at the time was the comic books are too expensive. They're getting to be too expensive. They're like, you know, whatever the price they were at the time, whether it was $1.99 or two, you know, whatever, whatever the price was. And... Um, you know, we were looking at the situation, and and so Marvel decided, you know, let's put these books out there, uh, ninety nine cents, and that'll kill the whole argument that the books are too expensive, and there'll be there'll be you know the the production values will not be the same as they are in the regular books, as you know the paper was getting better and the printing was getting better, the coloring these will be traditional flat color you know four color books, um, and you know. Let's see how they do. Um, I don't think the other books were taken that seriously in the other editorial office. I think that they looked at it as yet another book that we have to put out, Mm. and we're just gonna we're just gonna pump these out, whatever. And in my office, uh, I was working for Tom Brevoort. He was the editor. I was the assistant editor. Um, We were hungry. You know, we were we were ambitious, and so we saw this as an opportunity to do something a little more special. And the marching orders were to do a Spider-Man book that was very basic, very straightforward, aimed at a wide mainstream audience that isn't going to be so um, up on the vast continuity of the character and uh, just keep it simple. And one of the main things that we wanted was Peter back as a student full-time we hadn't decided yet that it was going to take place in his earliest days, uh, but we knew that we wanted to tell stories of him back in school, unmarried, in his youth, um, and we wanted to be faithful to the continuity. We didn't want to do anything that would contradict the canon. And um, so I, I do remember Brevoort and I... Um, you know, kicking around and, and deciding, okay, how do we want to approach this and all that? And I remember that I wanted to set it in college, 
during the college years, which would have been the Stan Lee John Ramita era, mm-hmm. because I wanted I wanted Gwen Stacy in there, I wanted Harry Osborne, I wanted Peter to be a little bit older so that we could tell you know stories that you know getting him into slightly more mature situations than he would if if he were in high school. Um, ultimately, when Kurt Busick, uh, when we brought him in to write the book, he decided that we would set it in high school, which, uh, which was fine. Um, and I do believe it was Kurt who came up with the idea that untold tales of Spider-Man would function as if Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man, instead of being launched in 1975 as the sister book to amazing Spider-Man, it was launched in 1962, like not long after amazing Spider-Man was launched. Hmm. So the idea was you've got, the original Lee Ditko issues of Amazing, and and those are the A book, and Untold Tales of Spider-Man would have been, you know, Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man. We take all of our cues from Amazing, we weave in and out, but we don't do it in such a way that you have to go back and read all those original stories. So all you really had to know was, this is Peter Parker, back when he was in high school, uh, when he was just starting out as Spider-Man, these were the people... In his life at the time, so he had this infatuation with Betty Brand, and he was just starting out at um, at the uh, uh, Daily Bugle. In this, at the same time, we had the benefit of twenty twenty hindsight, so we could do a story or two about what Norman Osborn was doing during that time, and Harry, uh, where Gwen was at that time, where Mary Jane was. We did a whole issue about Mary Jane mm-hmm. before she even met Peter. Um, because of the, all the stuff that had been established in the main book over the years. So we were able to kind of have our cake and eat it too. Um, and, and it was great. It was, it was a great experience. Um, uh, Pat Olive was, was uh, a guy, he was the artist on the book, Pat Olive. Um, he was a guy that I recommended for the job. I, I, I saw his stuff. I was aware of his stuff uh, since my fan days and uh, he was doing some great stuff on um, Warlock and the Infinity Watch. And when that book was wrapping up, I guess, um, he, was, he, he had been freed up. And I just, I just, in my mind, I just envisioned that he would do a great Spider-Man. And so I suggested it to Tom Brevoort. And Brevoort said, sure, you know, talk to him. And I reached out to Pat. And uh, he, did a, he did sort of like a, a tryout. He did a, he did a sketch to show how, how he would do the Ditko-era Spider-Man, and he nailed it. He was terrific. And so it all kind of fell into place. I mean, that's again, it's a very special book to a lot of people. And again, I, Pat Olf, looking at his art, it's hard to imagine anyone else on that book because, again, it's such a – I mean, I guess the only other person who I could imagine, and I guess he did some of the issues, would have been Ron Friends because, again, yeah. being able to kind of channel and really give the right – um, appreciation to Ditko without being slavish to it, but being able to do a bit of their own spin, but also being able to kind of ground it in Grico, uh, Ditko's world. I think those are really only the only two artists I could really quickly imagine even having done it. Uh, I I agree with you. Uh, I was, we were blessed. We were blessed that Pat was available. Uh, Kurt, you know, was was the right guy for the job. And uh, I'm very proud of, of that entire run. I actually wrote a few issues with Kurt uh, when Kurt was uh, behind. He was either behind on deadlines or he was ill. He was too ill to do uh, a few issues completely on his own. 
So uh, I worked with him on those few issues uh, under a pseudonym. <laughs> I, I was G.L. Lawrence, basically. So if you go back to those issues and you see written by Kurt Busiek and G.L. Lawrence, I was G.L. Lawrence. And uh, it was a thrill. It was an absolute thrill. Uh, as a writer, as an editor, as, as just a, a, a member of the team, I was very, very proud of that book. And um, uh, I'm glad that it's, it's, it's so fondly remembered. Oh, for sure. I mean, again, it's uh, you know, it's it's made omnibus format uh, actually pretty relative early on when omnibuses started being uh, published. It was one of the earlier ones that were put together, um, and now it's actually coming out in uh, softcover complete collections as well. So there's definitely a uh, a reverence for that material because again, it's so much fun to read. Um, it's very timeless. Um, it, you know, you can kind of read it whenever. Uh, my son is you know, my son's eight years old. He's been reading until Tales of Spider Man. Big fan of it as well. Again, it's it really works. And again, I also love it from the continuity standpoint of being able to you know weave in and out and i had never really thought of it as you know the idea of it kind of being the b title to amazing spider-man but that's exactly what it is and it's such yeah. a so i'm glad to hear you say that because i never thought of it that way but obviously that makes complete sense yeah it, it doesn't and and in the sense that you know kurt made up a few new villains which they did in peter parker because at you know back then in the early days of peter parker uh the writers, whoever you know, they were at the time. Whether it was uh, usually it was Bill Mantlo, and whoever was writing Amazing Spider-Man at the time had claim over all the A-list villains. So Mantlo either had to use B-list villains or come up with you know new villains on his own. And so uh, that you know, Kurt came up with Batwing and mm -hmm. uh, 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 Scorcher and Commander, and uh, you know. It really was the same kind of situation because because a lot of those villains, the A-list villains, their histories were so locked in, and and so you had to sort of really work around it. We were able to fit in. I remember we did a Vulture story, we did a Doctor Octopus story, we did one Green Goblin story, um, but you know, aside from that, Kurt did a lot of uh, stuff uh, completely original, Absolutely. and it was great. So I have a question in and around this time period where you have Kurt Busiek kind of working on some spider projects. Um, were you directly, and I can't remember, were you directly involved in the creation of Spider-Man Legacy of Evil? Yes, I was the assistant editor on that, and it, it kind of, um, it kind of originated, well, not kind of, it, it originated in our office, which was, I mean, because Marvel's, the, again, there's Kurt's name again, mm -hmm. Mar uh, Marvel's had come out uh, by Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross, and it had done phenomenally well, so Marvel was really hot to do more painted projects. Mm. And so uh, our editor-in-chief at the time, uh, the Spider-Man editor-in-chief, uh, a guy named Bob Budiansky, he came to us and said that he wanted uh, us to do a Spider-Man painted project. And um, I, what I can't remember is, did we go to Kurt with the idea of doing a history of the Green Goblin, or did he come to us? That I can't remember. But whatever it was, I think, if I'm not mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, we had the idea that we wanted to do a history of the Green Goblin, and we went to Kurt. I, 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 I I'm not 100% sure, but I think we went to Kurt. Um, and uh, this this was one of the last sort of his history projects <laughs> that, uh, that, that Kurt was willing to do. Um, it got to the point where um, 
He said, you know what, between Untold Tales of Spider-Man and this Legacy of Evil book, I don't want to be known as, you know, the history guy at Marvel. I want to, I want to be able to tell news stories, you know, uh, and I want to move, move towards that direction. So I think that Legacy of Evil represents, like, really the last of the history books mm. that, uh, that, that Kurt worked on. Uh, I, I, I seem to remember now, it's, it's coming back to me a little bit. I think we had the concept, why don't we do the history of the Green Goblin and we approach Kurt about it. And we wanted to work with Mark Texera, who was really hot at the time and doing a lot of painted stuff. And we paired the two of them together. And that's how Legacy of Evil came along. Um, and with that, Kurt, Kurt basically, you know, once, once, once the, the project got greenlit, Kurt, Kurt was up and running. He, he basically handed the plot in. I don't remember a lot of feedback coming from us. I think it was really a lot of Kurt. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting because, I mean, I, I don't know how much you've been kind of keeping up on what happens in Spider-Man these days, but, I mean, you know, it's it's been recently referenced in the current run of Amazing Spider-Man, so it was kind of interesting that, like, that was a 25-year-old story. I don't think most people remember it because, again, it was a, it was a one-shot. You know, it wasn't, you know... It, it, it took place in you know relatively current continuity, but I don't know if a lot of people remembered it. So I remember when I saw it referenced, I'm like, well, it feels like a deep cut because again, I don't think it had really been republished that many places either. So it's just kind of interesting to see it kind of rear its ugly head. I always liked it. It was a, a, a very you know nice looking book, and it definitely tried to do something different. And now they're kind of coming back to some of those ideas in current comics. So you know, no, no stone goes, goes left unturned, I guess. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's ever been reprinted, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I don't think so. I'm, I'm really thinking about it. Like, I own one of the original, like, I, I own the original copy, but I don't think yeah, it's ever too. been reprinted anywhere. Yeah. Uh, I, I Just to answer your question from before, I, I have not read any of the current run of Amazing Spider-Man. The last issue that I read was actually Dan Slott's last issue. Okay. Uh, so I have not read any of this current run. I've heard bits and pieces, but but I I couldn't I could not comment on it uh, just because I, I haven't read any of it. But I'm getting close. I'm I'm, I'm I fell way behind in my my comic book reading. But uh, the after this current uh, current batch of Immortal Hulk that I'm reading because I'm catching up on that. Spider Man is next in the docket. So uh, I know I've got a lot of catching up to do. But uh, I've heard bits and pieces. Uh, but but I I couldn't comment okay. on any of it. Now, one of the, I guess, relatively early projects that you, or at least published products, projects that you were working on as a writer was Spider-Man The Osborne Journal, which is kind of a, a nice kind of addendum or I guess, epilogue to kind of wrapping up the clone saga. And I've always loved it. So as I've already said, I love continuity. I love kind of seeing things being brought together and explain things. Um, I was getting into Spider-Man comics right around the time The Osborne Journal came out. Uh, so I literally started buying uh, Spider-Man comics regularly the issue after the Clone Saga ended. So when Tom DeFalco kind of started his new run with Steve Scroce or Scrooge, uh on Amazing Spider-Man, uh, that was kind of me starting to to buy at that point. Now, I had had a kind of a working knowledge of what the Clone Saga obviously had been about, but then I loved the Osborne Journal. And that, to me, was... I love continuity. I love pulling it all together. And that book, for a long time, was book one of my favorite issues I'd ever read because it was got great artwork by Kyle Hotz, um, that was kind of creepy and, and moody and you really played with, again, pulling things together that maybe obviously were not originally supposed to kind of come together. So how much work was it to work on something like that? And I guess, again, building off of the Mark Grunewald of it all, did that feel like you were doing what Mark Grunewald would do, kind of pulling continuity together? Uh, well, first of all, thank you. I, I am very flattered by the compliment. Uh, that, that's, that means a lot to me. And so, so thank you very much. Um, I don't, I don't recall 
Mark really being heavily on my mind when when I was working on it, only in the sense that Mark's involvement with Spider-Man hmm. was very, very, very limited, if if at all. So I don't remember like him looming too too heavily on my mind, even in terms of pulling the continuity together. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that my brain was kind of hardwired for anyway. So for me, it came very naturally. So it wasn't on my mind like, well, I'm really following in the footsteps of Mark Runewald or anything like that. I don't think that was really weighing upon me at all. Um, I mean, I hate to I hate to kind of like shatter any myths, but believe it or not, it came together pretty darn easily um, in the sense that I, at the time, I was so enmeshed in Spider-Man between helping out on the regular books uh, whenever they needed, whenever they needed me, uh, and also working on Untold Tales of Spider-Man, Legacy of Evil. So I was really enmeshed in in Spider-Man continuity, like from from the, you know, all the way back to the early days to, to the current days. So all of that stuff was swimming in my head. When I was uh, asked to do the Osborne Journal, um, I sat down. I was on a I was on a, a city bus. Uh, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, um, and so I think I was either oh yeah, I must have been on a, I must have been on one side of Brooklyn where I was living, and going um, on a city bus cross town to where my parents lived to visit them. So it was about a forty five minute bus ride. Okay. I had my notebook with me, and I started mapping out the outline for the Osborne Journal when I got on the bus. By the time I got to my parents' house, I had the whole thing pretty much mapped out. All that continuity, the issue numbers even, were in my head in terms of, well, if I, if I mention this, then I have to mention this, and, that, and, this, and, this, and Norman would have been here, and he did this, and I'm writing all of this stuff down. And literally, by the time I got off the bus, the, the basic outline – was done, and I, I I turned that into a timeline of of events of how Norman would have been, you know, since he was alive for all Norman Osborn, the Green Goblin, uh, who had been supposedly dead since 1973 in the you know comics. Um, where he was when he when he was supposed to be dead, what he was doing, why we hadn't seen him for all of those years, those intervening years, and I, it just all came to me. And, and because I was so indoctrinated into the continuity, I knew how to pull it all together. Um, and that's that's really how it how how it how it how, that was the process basically. And and when I sat down to write the actual script for the Osborne Journal. All I did was just flush out that outline just a little bit here and there, um, but but that was it. It was it was basically a forty five minute junior job, <laughs> um, and and you know um, obviously I, I was firing on all cylinders because um, people like you enjoyed it so much. It, it worked. I mean, what can I tell you? I, I can't be objective about it. Um, uh, there were things that I would have liked to have done if I had more pages. Um, you know, I re- the one thing I regret is that I couldn't wrap the whole thing around a story set in the present day the way Kurt Busiek did with um, mm-hmm. Legacy of Evil. If you remember, most you know a lot of it was set in the present day. There was there was an ongoing storyline where we weaved in the history of the Green Goblin throughout and like through vignettes. 
With the Osborne Journal, the whole thing was one big vignette. It was just a series of vignettes with just a couple of pages here and there set in the present. Um, that and and at, uh, on the last page, we're definitely in the present, and P, uh, Norman Osborn is getting ready to go and make his presence known to Peter at the end of the Clone Saga. Um, but other than that, it's all set in the past. It's all like you know, like almost, almost like an illustrated timeline. Mm-hmm. And that's the one regret that I had is I would have liked to have made it a little bit more of a story. Was there any hesitation from, I mean, obviously you're working in editorial anyway, but was there any hesitation about it being maybe too much of, I, I'm, I'm going to use the word info dump, but I don't mean it in a bad way because obviously I'm a huge fan of the book, but was there any apprehension that it was too much of an info dump for people to enjoy? I'm going to I'm gonna shatter any illusions. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody cared. Hmm. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Um, this book was put on the Marvel publishing schedule by one of the executives. Um, one day, it just showed up on the publishing schedule to, be, to come out in December of 1996. And uh, the editor of Spider-Man at the time was Ralph Macchio, who's a dear friend of mine. Um, he gets the, the, the publishing schedule for the next few months, and he sees in December there's a book called Spider-Man... The Goblin Journals. He has no idea what it is. <laughs> Nobody told him. They just put it on the schedule. So he and I are out to lunch one day, and he says to me, you know, I've got this thing on, on the schedule, Spider-Man, The Goblin Journals. I don't know what it is. I, I, I have no idea what this book is. So I said, well, well what are you going to do? What are you, you going to make of it? He goes, I have no idea. I, don't, I, I have no idea what this is going to be. So I said, well, look. I can tell you what I would do with it if I were in your shoes. And he goes, "What? Um, now, did you, you, I'm sure you remember the Tomb of Dracula comic book, right? Mm-hmm. You've heard, at least heard. Have you ever read it? Uh, a, a few issues here and there, not a lot of it. Okay, so I'll, I'll try to sort of not get too bogged down in detail. But you know what I was saying to Ralph was, remember those issues of Tomb of Dracula where every few months they would do one issue where Dracula writes in his journal and there's three vignettes and and he tells these incidents from his point of view so you get to see these these bits of his past but he's the narrator so you know you're getting a very skewed version of of the story because the villain is basically telling the story i said that's what you should do with this book i said have norman tell the whole history of, of how he survived supposedly being killed after he killed Gwen Stacy, how he's been alive this whole time, what he's been doing, why he, he's, been, he's been staying hidden until now, and, and how he affected or influenced Spider-Man's history from afar. And have it all in his own words. That's how you should do it. And he said, that's great. You want to write it? And and I said, no, (laughs) I said, no, I said, because at the time things were changing at Marvel and it was becoming frowned upon for staffers to be doing freelance, you know, freelance work. It was uh, uh, even though it had been it had been a a tradition at the company for you know decades. Now, all of a sudden there was new management and and they frowned upon it. So I didn't want to I didn't want to, you know, a target on my back, you know, for 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 doing something like that. I didn't want anybody to think I was lobbying for it or anything. So I said, no, Um, I said, the guy you should write, you, you should reach out to 
is Kurt Busiek. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that was at the point where Kurt didn't want to do history books anymore, you mm. know? So he turned Ralph down. And so Ralph came back to me and said, look, I, I reached out to Kurt. He said no. I said, okay, look, if Kurt, if you, if, if you're, if you reached out to Kurt and he said no, I'm not taking work away from him. Fine, I'll do it, and that's that's how it came about uh, because Kurt had turned it down, and um, and and so under those circumstances, I felt comfortable doing it. But to to answer your question, see, I told you I was I'm long winded, <laughs> but uh, uh, to answer your, you, nobody knew what this book was when it was put on the schedule. I'm the one who came up with the concept for it. Ralph was fully on board for it. And Ralph just let me run, run, you know, run free and clear with it. So I don't think anybody was really. This was basically done as a book to get out there to help, you know, help us get, you know, meet meet the budget for the end of the year. I don't think anybody cared one way or the other. And the fact that it turned out as well as it did was, you know, kind of like, you know, a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to move on a little bit in the chronology. So I'm curious about um, what was. What was the process of getting Roger Stern to do Hobgoblin Lives? I'm a huge fan of that book. I've, I've, been, I've had the, the, the great fortune to be able to talk to Roger about it and also talk to Ron about it. Uh, but again, I think in one of the intros to one of the collections, um, Roger mentions that it, it was two editors who were able to listen to him and, and were interested in, in kind of doing something with this, which eventually became Hobgoblin Lives, which I guess he's referring to you and Tom. So yes. what was the process of putting that together? And again, obviously there's something, you know, something works between you and Roger because you guys end up working on Goblins at the Gate together as well. So I'm curious what the process was of getting Hobgoblin Lives, uh, not just greenlit, but also, you know, kind of, uh, you know, published and what your, how do you feel about that book? Because I mean, again, going back to my age, I, it came out not that long after, I think. So I, I would have been like 13, 14 years old. I'm already loving continuity. I get a very continuity heavy miniseries. It's got a checklist at the back of all the kind of moments and things that they're referencing. I'm in heaven. So I love, I love the book. Again, it, it made me really fall in love with the Hobgoblin. I'd read a, f- a few older Hobgoblin appearances at that time, but really that, that miniseries really cemented my love of the character. And again, loving the, that kind of format of, you know, having those pages at the back telling you all sorts of extra stuff. So you have this sense of this lived in world. So what was it like putting this together from your perspective? Well, um, I, I don't think Tom Tom will be offended for me to say this. Um, Tom let me edit the book. I was I was basically the hands on editor. Uh, Tom, Tom was my overseer, but he you know he kind of was was like maybe I'd say one step over to the side. He let me run wild with it. This was a passion project of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, Roger Stern, in my opinion, is the second greatest Spider-Man writer of all time. Stanley's number one. Um, Roger left Spider-Man um, with a lot of unfinished business. Uh, he never got to finish the Hobgoblin story. And the, um, the resolution of that story got completely derailed. Um, uh, to, I don't think to anybody's satisfaction when it, when it was originally mm-hmm. resolved and 1987, I guess it was. Um, and Roger, every now and then, I'd read an interview with Roger, and he would say, you know, uh, my original plan for the Hobgoblin, uh, the, re- the, the, the revelation of who he was, um, it could still work. You know, the, the, the way that they settled it in the comic books after I left, um, it doesn't really work for me, 
And I could, you know, any time I could come back in and pick up and, and tell the story the way I originally wanted because the real Hobgoblin in my mind is still out there. It wasn't Ned Leeds. Um, he never was Ned Leeds. And, uh, you know, my story could still work today. And every now and then there'd be a new Spider-Man editor and Roger would put a feeler out and say, you know, I, we, could, we could always do the Hobgoblin. And he, no one ever bit, you know, no one ever took him up on it. Well, by the time uh, we're talking 1995, 96, I'm there. I'm, I'm uh, a seasoned assistant editor, associate, whatever I was at the time, working for Tom Brevoort. And we were working on a lot of, you know, subsidiary Spider-Man projects. And Marvel was really looking to, to pump up and pump out more and more Spider-Man projects, more than Ralph Macchio could handle. Because he was handling four monthly Spider-Man books. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. Yeah. So... So Brevoort and I, you know, would take on some of the some of the ancillary stuff, and uh, my feeling was, and I, I had put out feelers to Roger every now and then. Hey, Roger, would love to see you back on Spider Man. How about you do this? Nah, I'm not really that interested. But you know, let's let's keep the conversation going, Glenn. You know, it's nice to talk to you, and I do that maybe two or three times, and then finally, when we the word came down from above, we need more Spider Man product. Um, I said to Brevoort, uh, why don't we call Roger and have him do the Hobgoblin story that he wants to do? And Tom was like, you know, I don't have an objection if Ralph doesn't have an objection because, you know, it's a big story to tell the story of the Hobgoblin. Mm-hmm. And that would you normally fall under Ralph's purview. And Ralph, just a few months earlier, had revamped the Hobgoblin that, you know, existed at that time in the comics. So would he be be okay with it? So I went to Ralph and explained to him. And Ralph was like, I'm fine with that. And I said, well, what if it means killing off the Hobgoblin that you've got now? And Ralph just kind of shrugged. He said, that character's not really working. He said, we've we've tried to revamp him. We've tried to make him more of a threat. He's just a second run. He's just an also ran. He's not the original guy. He said, this is a chance for Roger. He goes, yeah, go, go. If you can, if you can get this project approved, go ahead. So I'm like bouncing from office to office, you know, for Brevoort and Ralph. And, and the next step was to go to the editor in chief. And, uh, I went to the editor in chief and he said, look, he said, the problem that we've always had with Roger's resolution to the Hobgoblin story is he's never told anybody who the Hobgoblin really is. I can't sign off on a story unless I know what this, because what if it turns out to be a big, you know, nothing burger, like, like a big flop, you know, what if, what if it's just not a great story? So I said, okay. I said, I'll talk to Roger. So I called Roger. I approached him about the project. Naturally he was intrigued. (laughs) And I said to him, Roger, here's the thing. I said, the editor-in-chief will not sign off on this unless he knows how you plan to resolve this storyline. And to do that, we need to know who the Hobgoblin is. We won't tell anybody. I know it's a secret that you've held for, I guess at that point it was almost you know, 15 years, 18, 15 years or mm-hmm. so. I said, I will keep it a secret. Tom Brevoort will keep it a secret. The editor-in-chief will keep it. We will not tell anybody. But to get this project greenlit, you need to tell me who it is. And how you plan to get there. And he did. And I basically went back to the editor-in-chief and tried to use the same exact phrasing that Roger conveyed to me. And I said, this is how Roger has it in mind. And it's, it's, it's going to be this guy. 
and this is what he's been up to all this time, and this is how the story is going to play itself out. And the editor in chief, uh, the one bit that that he insisted upon was because we're establishing that Ned Leeds had never been the Hobgoblin. This has to be a big story for Betty for Betty Brandt because it's her husband that for all these years we thought had been the Hobgoblin. We're basically exonerating Ned. This has to be a big story for Betty. And so I went back to Roger, and he was fine with that. I think he probably had it in mind anyway. And that's how it all came together. It was basically me coming up with the idea of let's take Roger up on that offer because we want Roger doing more. Roger Stern doing Spider-Man is a very good thing. And if this is the project that's going to entice him to come back, then let's do it. Uh, and it was just, you know, me bouncing from office to office, you know, uh, getting bits and pieces of information and sharing it and and just, you know, being very um, persistent about it. And uh, and um, uh, ideally, um, the original team would have been great to, to have to have Roger and John Romita Jr. back, you know, telling, the you know, this new Hobgoblin story. Uh, but John Romita Jr. was committed to. Uh, the, one of the main Spider-Man books at the time, mm-hmm. and so I was under strict orders not to even call him, <laughs> not oh, to nice. even tell him that this was in that this was in the planning stages. And I said, if John if John is off the table, there's only other one other person that is suited to do this. If, and if he doesn't do it, I don't know if I want to do it. And that was Ron Friends. Was it hard to convince him? Um. He was skeptical a little bit. Uh, he, he was skeptical in the sense that had too much time gone by to dredge all this up again, hmm. uh, which is, was a valid concern. But I said to him, I said, Ron, I said, you know, you'd be so perfect for this. It's a chance to work with Roger Stern again and, and do, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a way to revisit your roots and also to reclaim, you know, some of the, your territory. I mean, you were as much a contributor to the Hobgoblin as anybody. Um, and, and I think, Rod, no matter what, even if so many years have gone by, you know it's going to be a good story because Roger's writing it. And, uh, I, 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 you know, I, I wouldn't exactly call myself silver-tongued, but, <laughs> but I, I made a strong enough case to convince Ron to have some trust in, in, in Roger and in me and, and commit to it. And, and, and he did. And uh, he, he did a fantastic job. They both did. Absolutely. No, it's a great, it's a, as I said, it's a fantastic book. So building off of that, I'm curious about the process of pitching Goblins at the Gate, which is a huge, you know, I'm surprised it didn't get more fanfare. You know, it's a, it's a three-part storyline in Spectacular Spider-Man. It's relatively yeah. near the end of the Spectacular Spider-Man before it got uh, canceled and everything kind of got rebooted as part of a relaunch. Um, but you have you and Roger Stern working on it, and it's finally, we're getting to get to see the original Hobgoblin and the original Green Goblin coming face-to-face. That's a huge yeah. moment. Um, I love that. That I remember, again, I was a big fan of Hobgoblin Lives, and then suddenly we have this this book that's going to... I wasn't even reading Spectacular at the time. I was reading Amazing, and I was like, wait a minute. You're, they're bringing... <laughs> these two guys are going to see come face-to-face. I have to buy Spectacular to see this. And so I've that's always, right, you had to. I've always <laughs> loved it, and I'm glad it's in... You know, it's it's been recollected in uh, 
the Hobgoblin Lives trade paperback. It has. I love that. I love that. I love that they put those two stories together. Well, I mean, they're meant to be together, right? I mean, they yeah. really they're they're a nice. Uh, also, one thing I loved is just in general is I loved how you guys left Roderick Kingsley after that story. Like, it felt very much like you kind of put him out, not the pasture, so to speak, but you put him on an island. He's just hanging out, but he can come yep. back at any moment, and eventually, yep. obviously, he would. But I yep. just always love that idea that you kind of you left him in a good spot that anyone could use him if they ever wanted to. But what was it like? You know, who did you have to convince to be able to kind of put those two characters back together and have them meet each other for the first time? And how did you get Roger to work on it with you? Okay. Well, to answer your first question, who did I have to convince? Nobody. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the um, – I actually I actually wrote a whole piece on my blog about this. Um, and um, – it's it's really in detail just how, how that story came together, uh, but I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. Sure. Um, Roger had mentioned around the time that Hobgoblin Lives was coming out that the next story he really really wanted to do he'd love to bring the original Hobgoblin and the original Green Goblin together since they're both alive they're both alive and well just ripe for 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 playing with um, and. That was always in the back of my mind. I would have loved to have done something uh, with Roger on that uh, as his editor. But by that, by this point, this was, um, I guess, uh, shortly after I was promoted. So I was no longer really working on the Spider-Man books as an assistant editor. I was no longer working on Jatan Brevoort. I was an editor now, uh, uh, working on my own books. And what happened was Spectacular Spider-Man needed a writer. Uh, I believe J.M. DeMattis had left the book, mm-hmm. and I was I was helping him out on his last couple of issues, or maybe his last. Yeah, I think he, I was helping him out on his last couple of issues, and then he left altogether. What happened was, I'm sitting in my office one day, and Ralph Macchio walks into my office. He says, "Glenn," he said, "I am without a writer on Spectacular Spider-Man, and I have to write." The solicits for the um, the uh, catalog, the Marvel catalog, the brochure that the retailers order from. He said, "Do you think you can come up with a three part story to get me over the next three months, one storyline, just so that I have something I can write up, you know, for the solicits uh, to put in the catalog?" And I looked at him, and the first thing that popped into my head was original Hobgoblin versus original Green Goblin. But I didn't say that out loud. That was what popped into my head. And I looked at Ralph and I said, Ralph, give me a half an hour. I said, let me get back to you. Give me a half an hour. As soon as he left my office, I got on the phone and I called Roger. And I said, Roger, here's the situation. And I've got, I said, I've got three issues of Spectacular Spider-Man that's being offered to me. Uh, They're hoping for a three-parter. I said, the first thing that popped into my head is original Hobgoblin versus original Green Goblin. I know that's a story you want to do. I said, I'm in a position where I can do that story. If you do not want me to do that story, I will not do that story. But I said, because I'm in a position to do this, how about you come on and write it with me? And Roger was like, okay, okay. I said, and Roger, as we're talking right now, the, 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 the germ of an idea is formulating. And I said, you know how Norman Osborn left all those journals behind when he supposedly died and the Hobgoblin was always you know, trying to get his hands on those journals? Well, right now, the Hobgoblin is in jail because that's where we left him in, uh, at the end of Hobgoblin Lives. Mm-hmm. I said, what if he claims he's got 
one of Norman Osborne's journals, one that, that, that he's never revealed before. Um, and he'll only reveal its location and prove without a shadow of a doubt that Norman Osborne is the Green Goblin if he's given, you know, time, you know, time off for good behavior, whatever, to, to get at, to, you know, a, a more lenient sentence or whatever. Um, of course, that prompts Norman to take action. If, if this guy's got one of his journals and is threatening to use it to expose him as the Green Goblin, because remember, at this time, the world didn't know that Norman Osborn had been the Green Goblin. Uh, he's he's going to take action, try to you know get you know get his get his own hands on 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 the hobgoblin. So I said that's that's the beginnings of an idea. And Roger's like, I like it. I like. I know exactly where you're going with this. And as I'm talking, Roger's like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Roger started pitching an idea. And before we knew it, we had we had the, the skeleton of an idea. So I said, So Roger, are you in? He goes, Yeah, I'm in. <laughs> so uh, I got off the phone with 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 uh, with Roger, and I walked over to Ralph's office. I said. Ralph, you want a three-parter? He goes, yeah. I said, original Hobgoblin versus original Green Goblin, me and Roger Stern co-writing. What do you think? And that was it. <laughs> it was as simple as that. And the way we worked was I wrote – I, you know, Roger and I would talk on the phone for each issue. Each time, each time there was an issue to write, we would talk on the phone. I would take notes. I would write a plot based on our conversations. I would send the plot to Roger. Roger would make notes. I would revise it. Then the art would come in. Then I'd write a script based on the art, and then I'd send all that to Roger for any kind of um, you know tweaks or, or or notes or anything like that. And that's how we did it. Wow! Could you have imagined, a, a, you know, when you were younger, ever you know being able to co-write a story with Roger Stern? Not in a million years. And to this day, I look back and like, wow, I, I did that. That's that's amazing. Yeah. I wish I wish I could go back in time to when I was twelve years old, and say, you know when I when I was reading the first Hobgoblin stories by this guy whose work I loved because uh, I remembered you know his work on the Hulk which I loved and, and just he was one of the best writers Marvel had. I wish I could go back to, to that time and tell I said that that guy who's who's writing these comics that you love so much you're going to work with him someday. What do you think would have blown 12-year-old uh, Glenn's mind more? The fact that you got to work on Spider-Man with Roger Stern or that you got to write Star Trek? <laughs> um, wow. Uh, possibly – that's a tough choice. That is a real tough choice because I wanted to write Star Trek since I was 12 years old professionally. Um, I'd still like to write a full-length Star Trek novel. That's one of my unrealized you know, life ambitions. But writing the comics, oh my god! I, 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 you know what? I'd have to say it's it's a, it's an even bet. It's it's really it's 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 such a balance to have to choose between the two. I mean, it really both both things are, are absolutely mind blowing. Although I I think probably I was more destined to write Star Trek comics because I used to create my own Star Trek comics when I was a kid, when I was around twelve, and so it seemed like I was sort of like in training. To, uh, to to do to do that in my later years, whereas Spider Man, I, I kind of fell into that. I don't I don't think I ever expected to to to, to be a prominent Spider Man writer. Uh, certainly not with with um, with Roger. I think Star Trek was something I was more primed or prepared to do. Now, when you actually get the chance to write, as much as as you said, you're kind of primed for so long. How long did it kind of take you to really kind of sit down and be like, okay? This is for real now. <laughs> like this is actually happening. I actually get to write 
stories with these characters was that was it easy or was it hard like how do, how do you even approach it when again it's something you've always wanted to do something you've done kind of your for yourself but now it's it's a professional thing you're going to get paid to do it what what is that process I believe in the first in the script that I wrote for the first issue of Star Trek that I wrote I believe in the script I wrote something along the lines of somebody pinch me you know um <laughs> And, 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 you know, pray, please pray for me that I don't screw this up. Um, it, it, I, I don't remember it being intimidating. Uh, I think it was a little, I think it was a little bit daunting, but it didn't last very long because, you know, by that point I, 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 I had done some writing and, and I think I just kind of like had to sort of, you know, flip the professional switch and just say, look, you know, this is the big time. Get serious. Don't be intimidated. Take the enthusiasm and the love that you have and just channel it into the most professional work you can do. Um, and so I just I just sat down and did it. I, I just sort of put all of the emotionalism and all of the excitement, put it to the side and just said, OK, here's what you need to do. And here's, you know, here are the tools that you have as a writer to make this work. And that's just that's just how I approached it. Um, I tried to approach it the way I approached any other job, which is with with the utmost respect for the property uh, and and the professionalism and and you know turn off the fanboy mentality and and stick to the writer mentality mm-hmm. and 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 just. Uh, have a great time, but but don't forget that that you know this is the big time. You're getting paid for this. Do your best work. Hmm. Um, and and you know it, it came. I, I mean, it, I, as I recall, it came fairly easily for me, just because I knew those characters backwards and forwards. And once Paramount, because obviously all the stories had to be approved by Paramount. Once the storylines were approved by Paramount. Um, Everything else kind of fell into place. It's not like I had to struggle to find out, you know, well, how would Kirk react in this situation? I just knew by nature. <laughs> what would Kirk what would Kirk say in this in this circumstance? I could just do it. I could channel, you know, William Shatner, you know, in my head, you know, the way he would say it and what he would say and you know, especially McCoy. I had such a such a great time writing Dr. McCoy. Um, and and the knowledge of the history of the characters and the franchise and and all of that it was um, it, it was exciting but but it was it was also it was a good experience in the sense that I knew that I could put my fanboy mentality aside and just do what was best for the property hmm. now I have a question in the in the late 90s again when a lot of this is happening so Marvel decides to launch a new Hulk book which seems like an interesting timing because given where the industry was, given where Marvel was at that time, they launched and relatively short lived, obviously, but they launched the Rampaging Hulk, and you write the first five issues. What was that kind of experience like? To like, what was what was the morale like at the time? Where again, the, the late nineties is not you know things are aren't not necessarily going great for the company per se. Right. Some of the books are still really good. But mm-hmm. the company itself is obviously going through a lot of, you know, really bad periods in terms of its uh, the management, the bankruptcy, all this kind of stuff. And then they're launching other other new books still. So what was it like for you to be able to kind of launch one of those books, but also living within this, you know, this this uh, I'm trying to think of the right word here, but this evolution of the morale not necessarily right. being the greatest. 
Well, but, yeah, morale is terrible. Uh, and again, what you, you go to work every day and you wonder if you're going to get fired, laid off, you know, if your career is going to be over. But somehow you, 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 you just, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you go and you, you just, you just, you know, keep your head down and, and you just focus on the work. And that's what we did. Uh, with regard to Rampaging Hulk, the, the origin of that was uh, the president du jour, uh, you know, because we were going through presidents like, they, you know, like they were going through like a turnstile. Every couple of weeks we had a new president. And this guy's brilliant idea was let's get back on the newsstands because, you know, by that point Marvel was catering almost primarily, uh, almost exclusively to the direct market, which is the comic book shops. And his goal was to get us back on the newsstands where, you know, you just, you know, you just go to a newsstand where you pick up, you know, your, you know, cigarettes or, you know, uh, uh, your, your newspaper, get us back into those venues, which we had really sort of disappeared from. And so the idea was to start off with two books, that were geared specifically for the newsstand market. One was to feature the Hulk, and one was to feature Captain America. Hmm. Um, the, the, the Captain America book ended up being Captain America: Sentinel of Liberty, which was launched by Mark Wade and Ron Garney. I did not want to write the Hulk book. I wanted to edit the Hulk book. Hmm. I very much wanted to edit the Hulk book. Uh, everybody in the company knew that I wanted to edit the Hulk book and that I would have been the ideal person to edit the Hulk book just because the Hulk is my all-time favorite Marvel character. Mm. Uh, the editor-in-chief, for whatever reason, I'm sure he had his reasons. I don't understand those reasons, but he decided to give it to another editor, uh, an editor who did not know the Hulk at all. How do I know this? Because he told me, I do not know the Hulk at all. Uh, he came to me, uh, the editor, and said, look, I'm getting all these pitches in um, from different writers for this Hulk book, and uh, I, don't, I don't know the character at all. Can you take a look at these pitches and let me know what you think? And I looked at all of them, and one was worse than the other. There was one in particular that, that was just egregiously bad, and um, uh, I won't say who wrote it, <laughs> but it was I was horrified at, 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 at the possibility that this pitch would, would, would end up being accepted. So I said to him, I said, look, I don't like any of these pitches. Uh, I, I think they're all very wrongheaded. Um, and uh, I, I, think you, I think you need to expand your, your um, talent pool. I think you need to you know, go to different writers. And he came back to me at one point and said, he said, look, he, he said, I, I've got nothing. He said, this book is supposed to ship in three months. He said, I've got nothing. So I said, for crying out loud, man, I said, I said, look, I said, this is not what I want. <laughs> this is not what I want to do. I said, but if you're that strapped, I said, what if I write a pitch? And he said, could you? I said, yeah. I said, I'll go home tonight. I'll write a pitch. I'll give it to you. And, and we'll, we'll take it from there. And I spoke to him about the parameters. And I said, look. I would want to set this book in the present day because who the hell wants to read a book you know, set in the past? There's no drama. You know, you know nothing bad's going to happen to the character. So what if we do, do it in the present day and it reflects the current continuity but it tells stories alongside it, kind of like Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man? <laughs> and I was told, no, we need to set it in the past. We want this to be very straightforward, status quo Hulk, the version of the Hulk that everybody's familiar with, Hulk smash. We want, you know, 
want the traditional Hulk. And Peter David, who was writing the Hulk at that time, was going in different directions. We, they did not want the book to reflect that. I said, okay, fine, we'll set it in the past. Um, so, you should have said, call Kurt Busiek, make him do another history book. Right, exactly. <laughs> Um, no, I think at that point, Kurt was, was very busy. I think he was working on Thunderbolts maybe at that time, if, yeah. I, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's right. Um, yeah. So at any rate, um, I went home, wrote up a pitch based on the parameters. Uh, I think the editor-in-chief wanted to set the Hulk back in its earliest days uh, the series back in its earliest days so that the Hulk would like be the Kirby Hulk and he wanted Glenn Talbot and he wanted all that. I said, but but that Hulk is not the status quo Hulk. That's not the Hulk that everybody knows, the Hulk smash. That didn't come until later. And he said, don't be bound by continuity, babe. I said, no, 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 no. I don't want to put out a book that contradicts continuity. If you want a status quo Hulk, that's the Hulk smash Hulk, the Hulk of this, basically of the 70s. Let me play with that. So I came up with the concept, and I, I had a vague idea of when in the Hulk's history it would take place. Um, and um, and the, the pitch got approved. Um, I wasn't as enthusiastic as I probably would have been under different circumstances because, again, I didn't want to write a book set in the past. I, I would have much rather written a book that was set in the present, um, with with the kind of you know more sophisticated Hulk that that Peter was writing, I wanted access to you know to that. Um, the the artist would not have been my first choice for the book, uh, and as it turned out, we did not have the kind of creative chemistry that I would have liked. We seemed to be working at opposite purposes. So uh, after the first few issues, um, I, I was not very enthusiastic, and I was actually quite unhappy on the book. And so, you know, as you mentioned, I, I worked on the five, the first five issues, and I contributed a story idea um, for the sixth one. But when I saw the where the sixth issue was going, I I, I backed out. I, I, I begged off, and uh, they brought in another writer to finish it up. So. I don't look back at that particular experience with a lot of fondness because it just wasn't – it should have been the, the, the high point of my career in comics, getting to write the, the character that I you know, loved more than any other in, at Marvel. But it just it – wasn't, it wasn't a very creatively fulfilling or happy uh, experience for me for, for a variety of reasons. Um, um, yeah. Well, I'm sorry to hear and that. I, oh, 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 and, I, and I forgot to tell you the, the, the big punchline. Uh, so right before, uh, right before uh, Rampaging Hulk, you know, went on sale, um, we decided to pull it off the newsstand because, for whatever reason, they decided it wasn't going to be making enough money on the newsstands, and so it went strictly to the direct market, <laughs> which, which had no interest in this book to begin with because we've already got one Hulk book that's struggling to sell. Why are we, you know, you know? Why would the direct market support a second Hulk book that's not set in the present, that's not by an A-list writer, which I was not an A-list writer at the time, and an artist who, quite frankly, wasn't well-suited for the Hulk? And so the fact that it became all direct market, I knew, I knew once I heard that news, I said, this book is toast. I said, we'll be lucky if we get past the first year. I had no idea we were going to get canceled with number six. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm going to ask a question. So I, I, I'm a little short on time now, so I apologize because I feel like there's a lot of questions I didn't end up asking. So I do kind of apologize about that. Um, I hate to put you on the spot here, but obviously, you know, the, your your kind of Marvel Comics chapter ended up ending. Uh, so in the last, I guess, 20 years since that chapter, where what have you been doing and where have you been? Obviously, you've been you're contributing to back issue. There's a lot of other things you've been doing. So how can you kind of break it down for us? Well, uh, I took a job at Scholastic after I left Marvel. I became an editor and head writer of their news magazine for kids, mm-hmm. Scholastic News. Um, I, I, uh, after a long period there, I moved over to Time, Inc., uh, where I became a senior editor and uh, uh, jur- you know, journalist for kids uh, <laughs> for, for, uh, for Time Magazine for Kids. Um, and on the side, I was doing journalism, uh, strict journalism, uh, primarily pop culture. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, I did a lot of writing for Back Issue magazine. And um, in the last few years, I've been writing for Bauer Media and uh, for Time on their uh, bookazines, uh, their pop culture uh, bookazines. Um, in the last year alone, I've written a bookazine. You know, do you know what a bookazine is? I don't think I do. Okay. When you go to like a Dwayne Reed or uh, one of those drugstores and they've got those, you know, Time Magazine looks at, you know, uh, uh, The Office. Okay. And it's like a 100-page square-bound magazine book based on one topic. Yes. Okay. So in the last year, I've written that kind of thing for Time uh, and Bauer. I've done one on John Lennon. Mm. Uh, I did one on the history of Star Trek. I've done one on the history of Marvel. Uh, and I've got two coming out over the next few months. I've got one for the 40th anniversary of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, nice. And I'm finishing up the year with uh, uh, one that's very dear, near and dear to my heart. Uh, 100 pages, the history of Spider-Man. Very nice. So it's going to be Time Magazine, basically. You know, a, a, you know, uh, a special Time Magazine uh, edition, uh, the, the history of Spider-Man. And I got to interview most of the key figures who, who uh, chronicled Spider-Man's adventures in comics, mo- uh, TV, animation, uh, uh, video games over the last uh, 60 years almost. I guess, the, I guess next year is the 60 years, right? Yeah, yeah. And this is going to – the Spider-Man book is coming out in December to tie in with the new movie. But uh, yeah, I interviewed I interviewed uh, all, all of the key players uh, from the comics in terms of the writers, uh, a couple of the artists, John Mita Jr., Mark Bagley. Uh, I interviewed uh, the, the, uh, the, the head producer, the head writer and producer of Spider-Man the Animated Series from the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty jam-packed with information. I'm really happy with the way it came out. And but that's what I've been doing. That's that's what I've been doing on the side is is journalism. Uh, and now uh, for the last few years, I've been working in marketing as a as a copywriter for oh. a couple of uh, uh, education based companies. So so given all the things that you've kind of done in publishing and the connections you've made, how do you not have a podcast? <laughs> uh, Besides time. <laughs> uh, well, time, time is time is a factor. Believe me, I've thought about it. I've thought about doing a podcast. Uh, first, I need somebody to teach me how to do a podcast. <laughs> I mean, I, I, if I can do it, I think anybody can do it. But uh, well, yeah. I mean, it's definitely something that that I that I have thought about. If I'm going to do it, I really want to do it 
uh, you know, on, on a very sort of meticulous professional basis where, you know, I hear a lot of great podcasts where they've got like, you know, uh, uh, music and, 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 uh, special effects and all that kind of stuff. I would, I would want to do something like that and really make it sound very, you know, uh, uh produced, sure. uh, and until somebody teaches me how to do that, uh, I'm 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 at a loss. <laughs> I mean, if you find somebody who can teach you how to do that, they, maybe they could teach me as well. Because I would love yeah. to know the, the the more technical side. I'm, I'm very kind of bare bones. I I hope people yeah. come for the the good conversations and that kind of content as oh, opposed sure, to kind sure. of some of the frills. But uh, Glenn, it's been a tremendous honor being able to talk with you again. I've been a big fan for a long time, um, as as has been evidenced by this conversation. Uh, Hobgoblin lives and Osborne Journal were huge things to me growing up so being able to talk to you about it and uh being able to understand how much it meant to you as well has really meant a lot to me I, i'm very glad to hear that and that that really that that really warms my heart and makes it really all worthwhile uh you know it, it's just great it's great to hear so many years later that that my work is is still remembered fondly absolutely well again thank you so much for uh for coming on the show and uh you know good luck with the, the upcoming uh would you say their book zines <laughs> Yeah, bookazines, yeah. Raiders of the Lost Ark and uh, uh, Spider-Man. I had no idea that that was the technical term for what those are, so now, I, now I've learned something new. <laughs> it's never too late. Exactly. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.